Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hello and welcome to the Texas Medical Association's Practice Well podcast. My name is Meredith Finez with TMA Public Health and our guest today is Dr. Thomas Casper. Dr. Casper is an infectious disease specialist practicing in the Houston area and is a member of TMA's COVID-19 task force as well as the chair of the Committee on Infectious Disease. Today, Dr. Casper will be discussing what to do if a staff member or patient tests positive for COVID-19 in an outpatient setting. Welcome, Dr. Casper. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's important uh, for me to point out that uh, while uh, this is uh, something that is the current best practices guideline being put out by the TMA, that the situation is very fluid and uh, guidelines may change as we acquire more and more information about this virus, how it's spread, and the best way to prevent infection by this virus. So currently, these are our best practices and best recommendations, but be prepared for things to change at some point. Thanks, Dr. Casper. That's a good point to make. Today, we are talking about what steps a physician can take if one of their staff members or a patient in their outpatient clinic tests positive for COVID-19. Unfortunately, as COVID spreads, this has become a common question, and it's likely a physician can find themselves in this scenario. But before we talk about what happens if you have a patient or staff member test positive, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Casper, if there are any helpful steps you can take to separate possible COVID-19 patients from others in your clinic. Uh, Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, there are several things that most people are already doing. Um, It includes having patients uh, notify the office when they arrive, when they're in the parking lot. At that point, they can be advised to put on a mask before they enter the building Uh, They can be also told to be prepared to perform hand hygiene before approaching the window where the clerk will be waiting for them. It means that they will be escorted straight to the room and that while in the exam room, if they choose to, they can remove their mask. That other than that, we are going to ask them to keep their mask in place at all times while inside the building. Uh, We've been very lucky in that none of our employees have tested positive yet. Um, but uh, this is the uh, procedure that we have patients do. If they're going to be tested for COVID or suspect they may have COVID in any way, we'll have them just wait in the car. And uh, one of us will put on the suit with the mask and the shield and go out to the car and take a brief history and perform a nasopharyngeal swab if it's needed. Thank you, Dr. Casper. I think that's some really helpful advice for physicians. And I believe uh, we also cover those in our TMA Practice Well podcast on infection control and prevention. But let's say you find out a staff member has tested positive or a patient has tested positive after their visit. What's the first thing that you should do? Well, uh, whether it's a patient or a staff member, uh, the first step is to go back and look where this uh, patient or employee has been and make sure the areas are disinfected thoroughly. And I realize that we do that whether or not the patient is a known COVID patient or not. But certainly you would want to be sure that that sort of disinfection was performed. 
This includes uh, thoroughly drying or cleaning any surfaces or equipment that may have been used by the staff member and also being aware that you need to be using a cleaning agent that is an, uh, an effective in, against SARS-CoV-2 as well as some of these marketed disinfectants may not be up to the job. The EPA has a list on their website for proven disinfectants that are felt to be safe to use. If you have a larger office and uh, more than just a handful of employees, you may even want to consider using a login chart to track cleaning and disinfecting throughout the day, especially if you have a lot of traffic going in and out of a room and different people in charge of disinfecting the room. My office is very small. We have one person that does that job, but if you have more than one person, it certainly would be helpful for them to write down when this is done. Great. Yeah, and I think especially the notice on which products are, are safe to use is important since uh, I've seen recently ones from, from Mexico or other places have been uh, determined as falsely marketed. I agree. Yeah. And what about staff members who may have been exposed to the patient or coworker? Should they immediately quarantine? Well, it's going to depend on their level of exposure and whether or not they're wearing PPE at the time. Now, certainly, if you're uh, working at, at most offices, you're going to be required to be wearing personal protective equipment. So then uh, you've got to determine whether or not they've had close contact. And what's just as important is how long was that close contact. Passing someone and going within a foot or two of them and only being that close for a fraction of a second is not the same as having a 20-minute conversation face-to-face -face with someone. So for those who have had close contact and they were not wearing PPE and did not wear everything that's necessary, those people should be considered exposed and be excluded from work for 14 days minimum after exposure as well as being monitored for symptoms. And if they do have symptoms or are tested, then sort of secondary measures must go into effect. Now hopefully the staff will be wearing PPE at the time of the exposure. So they shouldn't need to be excluded for work, but should follow source control procedures, continue to wear their face mask, and of course monitor themselves for not just fever, but symptoms. And a lot of people say, well, what kind of symptoms? I tell them it's, the list would be too long to memorize. If they're running fever, certainly, and if they feel sick in any way, then one would need to consider whether or not this could represent COVID infection because different ages of people and people with different uh, underlying medical issues may present differently. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, could you elaborate a bit more on what counts as, as close contact? Does it count, for example, if the staff member or patient were just in the same room as each other? That's an excellent question. And my colleagues, <laughs> I have some, some brainy colleagues that like to d dissect everything and uh, they fuss with me about this, but the CDC definition is six feet. Um, that was uh, probably a number that was argued about by the people within the CDC, but at this point, six feet is considered the magic number. Uh, further, you want to try to minimize your exposure, but if you've been within six feet for more than 15 minutes, then certainly the CDC would consider this to be a significant exposure. Um, it's just like uh, other things would be, would be the same, something like radiation. If you're really close to the sun, but you're only there for a couple seconds, that's not as bad as being there for 15 minutes. So at this point, the CDC considers an exposure being within six feet of someone for more than 15 minutes. 
Thank you. I like the analogy with the sun. That's a good way to think about it. Uh, if you learn a patient that you've seen or who's been in your office later finds out that they have COVID, how do you know if they were infectious when they were in your office? Well, that's a real difficult thing. First thing I'm going to do, of course, is to race back and look at their vitals and uh, make sure that I don't see anything that looks abnormal for that patient. And let me explain what that means. Uh, very, very young children tend to run higher temperatures than older folks. As we get older, our, our average temperature drops just by a little bit. So certainly a 60-year-old person that comes in with 99.8 would be something that I would take seriously, even if the universally accepted 100 or 100.4 cutoff for fever um, is, is, is considered. You know, in, in that kind of a patient, you might want to look back and think, well, I wonder if they were starting to get sick at that point. Uh, right now, what they consider an exposure, it would be two days before the onset of symptoms because most people within two days of being exposed and infected will start to show symptoms within two days if they are going to start showing symptoms. Certainly, um, isolation can be discontinued once they have had no fever, no symptoms, and that means no symptoms without taking a bunch of Tylenol or Benadryl or anything else. So basically 24 hours of being well without any medication, as well as 10 days since the onset of symptoms. Not since resolution, but since the onset of symptoms. So in a nutshell, it would be 10 days after you start to feel sick and at least one day after you completely feel better without Tylenol. And at that point, isolation could then be discontinued. We know asymptomatic transmission is possible too, though. How do you determine if they were infectious if they never developed symptoms, but later found out they were COVID positive? That is really difficult to determine, especially if they're unclear about when they were exposed. Certainly, if exposure is known, they could be considered potentially infectious from two days after exposure. That's when we think that they become contagious to others. They would also be considered potentially infectious until they meet isolation criteria, which is going to be 10 days after their last positive tests. If they don't know when they were exposed, then a starting point of two days prior to the positive test can be used as the beginning of infectiousness. That makes sense. So let's say you determine that a staff member meets the criteria for discontinuation from work after exposure, but you are short-staffed or you can't continue to see patients without them working. Is there anything you can do? There are some things you can do. During crisis times, asymptomatic staff who had an unprotected exposure to an infected patient but are not known to be infectious can be allowed to continue to work. However, they must, like like before, continue to be monitored for temperature. At our office, we check twice a day, and certainly they need to be asked about symptoms, which could be virtually anything from a headache to uh, stomach problems. They have to, like everyone else, continue to wear their face mask. And if they even begin to feel sick, even if there's no fever present, at that point, patient care probably needs to stop. And if they test positive, then certainly they need to be excluded from work until they meet the return to work criteria that we have already mentioned. And have you, are you, do you work in an environment where all your staff have to be present in your uh, clinic or are you able to have them work from home if possible? Actually, because we have some Ryan White funding, they're very strict about HIPAA. So unfortunately, I'm the only one that can do anything from outside the office. And so I do call in patients' COVID results to them 
uh, when the uh, I, when the patient is accepting of a, a telephone follow-up, and that gives me an opportunity to discuss what their positive or negative test result means. Because, uh, as you know, a negative test result doesn't 100% mean that you don't have it, and a positive test result is certainly going to bring on a lot of questions. So we do a telephone follow-up for most of those patients. I think that's a great idea. And it keeps them from having to come into the office as well. Certainly, and uh, and and also it it, it keeps uh, it makes it to where it's a lot easier to catch up to them quickly if they have a positive test result. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so so far we've been talking about how to manage your staff when you have a COVID case in your practice. But let's say um, you need to notify your patients that there may have, they may have potentially been too ex- exposed. How do you go about doing that? Well, uh, if you follow the guidelines about patients coming in to be tested or suspicious for COVID, this should should happen minimally. But uh, the exposure criteria is going to be similar. Any patient who's had close contact with a confirmed case while they were potentially infectious should be notified. Now. HIPAA laws are still in place, so that doesn't mean you can tell them who exposed them or even necessarily where if that is going to make them be able to identify where they were exposed. They should be instructed to stay home until 14 days after the exposure so they can be monitored for any symptoms like fever or especially headache, shortness of breath, or anything that might predict a poor outcome. If they do develop symptoms, they should get tested then immediately. If they uh, can, they need to certainly try to avoid contact with the people that might be at higher risk for complications from COVID. Uh, Maybe go out of their way to completely avoid contact with someone that might uh, suffer a complication. What would you advise if the patient is asymptomatic but wants to be tested? I know that's been um, a big issue with a lot of people thinking that they've been exposed and want that immediate test result. Well, as we mentioned earlier, there's probably zero chance it would pick it up if you did it within the first two days, uh, because that's that's why we use two days as the gap between uh, when someone might become infectious. But if they really want to avoid a false negative test, they probably need to wait at least five to eight days after their exposure. Uh, that seems to be the magic window where the infectivity peaks out enough to where you're more likely to pick it up on a PCR test. And that's why it's also important to stay home even if you don't have symptoms because you could still be contagious in those two days leading up to when you do become symptomatic. Great. And I know you mentioned uh, the importance of following HIPAA laws and not disclosing information about a patient um, in the office. But if you have a patient who is notified that they may have been exposed and they want to know more about that, that patient or the the details of the exposure, do you have any advice for what a physician can tell them? Uh, Yes. Uh, In fact, this is something that you want to either do yourself or appoint to someone in your office that is very, very good at handling people and has good people skills because you still have to abide by state and federal privacy laws to make sure you're not disclosing any personal information. And remember, this doesn't just include naming the person that exposed them. This means that you cannot say, oh, we think you're exposed in the waiting room if there was only one person in the waiting room. I have a practice in a fairly small town, and there's a really good chance that they will remember every person that they saw on the way in and on the way out. 
So it's important that just like an STD clinic reporting STD exposure, you have to maintain privacy. And if you have a, an attorney or if you have a malpractice carrier with a counsel, feel free to, to call them if you have questions about exactly what HIPAA or OSHA rules might apply in your particular situation. But again, you, you must go to extraordinary lengths to preserve privacy uh, while still letting the patient know that they may have been exposed. Yes, and I think potentially consulting with your counsel is, is a great idea if you have any questions. Do you have any other advice? It might be helpful to have a plan on what to do if a staff member uh, or a patient is found out to be positive and make sure everybody in the staff is familiar with the steps that they need to take so that they're prepared, sort of like a fire drill. Make sure that the local health department gets all reports of suspected or confirmed cases. Um, this is something that is sort of, uh, I've had sort of a change in my way of thinking. I remember when I first had heard that, that New York was reporting a whole bunch of cases as suspected, and I also heard that they were going to get extra subsidy for patients that had COVID. It may be very skeptical that maybe they were trying to sort of upcharge and upcode uh, by claiming patients as having COVID, whether they may have had it or not. But now that we're doing testing in my office, I will tell you that when a patient comes in and they've had a headache for a couple of days with a 100 degree fever and they test negative for COVID and they tell me that they live in the house with someone that has COVID, I tell them that they need to consider themselves as having COVID. Just like during flu season, when you swab a bunch of throats and you notice that it's flu season, that a high percentage are coming back positive, and you have a patient that's got all the signs and symptoms of the flu, maybe even a, a, a big exposure to the flu, you're going to give them Tamiflu. You're going to give them something for their influenza because you know that those tests are barely picking up half of the people that really have influenza. You need to apply the same way of thinking to these COVID tests. If it looks and smells and tastes like ice cream, it's ice cream. <laughs> That's a good, uh, good way to end it, especially during summer when ice cream sounds pretty great right now. Well, um, and I want to uh, keep it a rated G uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah. And that concludes today's podcast on what to do if a staff member or patient tests positive for COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Casper, for joining us and sharing your valuable expertise and time. Thank you very much. And I want everybody out there to remember that the, you spent a lot of time being trained to be a good physician. And being a good physician means not relying 100% on any one test. So use your clinical skills. Um, these tests are fantastic. However, they're not 100% accurate. So use your clinical skills to determine whether or not you think someone is suspected of having COVID and use your good judgment when deciding whether or not their exposure was significant or not. Uh, five feet is barely, is barely under six feet and seven feet is barely bigger. So if someone's seven feet away from me for four hours, that might be considered an exposure. So use your good judgment and your skills that you've acquired when you're applying these guidelines. What great advice. And thank you for joining us for today's episode of TMA's Practice Well podcast featuring Dr. Thomas Casper. To access the links and list of resources discussed in this episode, please visit TMA's COVID-19 resource page at www.texmed.org forward slash COVID-19. 
Until next time, stay safe and stay well.